Welcome back to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I'm coming to you once again live from uh, Netflix uh, Hollywood office. I commuted in early, so that's always fun and exciting. Um, it's a, I, 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 I'm, we're, we're experiencing a, an extreme cold snap here in L.A. I think it's oh, in the stop. 50s. It's, it's stop. in the 50s, is it? Oh, man. Yes. That's inhumane. He's just... People in California are being just bad. <laughs> yep. It's, it's pretty, I had, to, I had to put on a sweatshirt today, right. but then, you know, when I started moving around, I got a little hot, so I took it off. Yeah. Wind chills down in the 40s. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, you can, uh. as you can probably hear, uh, I am joined, as, as I um, always am, at least when I'm actually on the show, uh, <laughs> by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. And today should be fun. We've, we've got a, a packed agenda um, uh, on this uh, rescheduled episode. We're going to finally wrap up the dwarves, and then we're going to move on to some uh, some villains. Some increasingly sketchy really characters. Wrap yeah. up the dwarves? Yeah. 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 Well, it's hard to wrap up the dwarves because Aule, uh designed them to be specially resistant to being wrapped up. So yeah. uh, it's not our yep. fault, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, anyway, uh, welcome everybody. So just a couple quick announcements before we get going. It is the beginning of our spring moot season. Tex moot happened last week or weekend before last. And uh, it was uh, it was awesome. Tex moot was great. Wonderful to see Trish there. Uh, Trish gave her paper. I was I was there in the back cheering. I was really, really Yeah, you, you actually came in and went to the back and you couldn't escape. So you had to actually sit there the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, it was standing room only. I was literally was. standing in the back of the room because all the chairs were full. I was uh, amazed. We had yeah. a great panel. Yeah, yeah there was, was I was sitting in the back. The hosts of the Prancing Pony podcast were sitting on the in the side of the room. Or, right? We were all, um, yeah, we were all on the floor. That was great. I think it was uh, the fan fiction paper that drew everybody in. That was a really good paper. It was a really good paper. Yeah, that was Augusta Hardy's paper. That was, that was really good. But no, yeah. they were all really interesting. Uh, so yeah, no, it was, it was very good. I, I, I really appreciated your uh, your discussion there and thinking about Tolkien and and Locho in the context of transmedia stuff, right? You want to you want to yeah, give like yeah. a two sentence version of, of sort of what you're talking about? I'm all about? over. I'm all over making a proposal to have that be a course at Signum transmedia like literature, transmedial fantasy would be awesome. Because yeah. like Dresden Files is another example. Yeah, well, it was really interesting because I mean I got into this because. My thesis had kind of had been looking at Lotro from a ar- archetype standpoint, and then I got right. to thinking about it, and I looked into it more, and it's like, you know, really, I didn't say this really completely, but it's like we've almost gone back to oral storytelling tradition because mm-hmm. the different media now that stories get put on, and Tolkien's a really good example, but there's others, you know, where we've got the books and the movies and the and the and the upcoming TV series and film film project and Lotro, right. where there's different pieces of the story being told by these different things. And it really takes kind of, you can get, you can get a full story if you just do one medium, but if you go to all the media, then you get a much richer textured story. It's really interesting. And what was interesting, and some of you may know this, but the matrix was actually built that way. I did not know that until I started to research. Yeah. That was really cool to learn. I didn't, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so it was, it's a, it was great, and I really got into it. I think if I was actually going to stay in academia, that's probably the area I would go down is the transmedial nature of literature. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I um, love it. Yeah. Yeah. That was. It oh was, yeah. Yeah. Was Netflix. Neat. There we go. I mean, you know, let's tee up some ideas for shows, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Address and Files reboot that's actually accurate. Yay, that would be awesome. I, 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 th- I feel like I heard that he's sold the rights again or something. Someone's well, going to try again. There have been rumors about that, but the last I heard was like he had uh, sort of... Uh, gently suggested that they were exaggerated in his Twitter feed, oh, so I don't know oh. for sure what's really happening, but... But, you know, he already has, I mean, the com- there's comics, and then right. there's was the tabletop RPG. Right. Oh, yeah. Which is brilliant. There, so. I really love the tabletop RPG. I've, I've never played it, but um, I really... I, I, the book itself is wonderful. Uh, if, you've ever, if you ever get a chance to see, like, if you're ever in uh, or near a, uh, like a gaming store or something... Uh, the the rules book for the Dresden Files RPG is hilarious because it's it's uh, the the whole thing is written uh, in uh, um, uh, uh, what's his name uh, the werewolf blanking oh uh, Billy? S- S- Billy, Billy yes in so Billy Borden writes the rule books but like Harry keeps interrupting <laughs> and like interjecting with these long like he, he he does these long asides and sometimes like comments in the margin about like you know I, I you know making snarky comments about how like magic doesn't work that way and clarifying things That's and stuff. Awesome. And then and then also in the margins Bob the Skull comes in and makes snarky comments all over the place <laughs> almost always in response to Harry's comments and also at various other random points and everything. So, That's worth it just to have even if you yeah, don't play just me. That. Yes. Yeah, that so I mean it, yeah and, and it's it's uh it's 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 very cool. It's very well done. But, I was Especially I was, since we seem to be in no danger of getting any new uh Dresden file books. I know, really. Yeah. Really. Well, exactly. I'm uh, a marriage does to a guy. <sighs> oh well. Yes, I've been patiently <laughs> waiting for peace talks, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I know. Anyway, um, let me. Um, but back to the Silmarillion. Back to oh, the back Silmarillion. To the yeah, back to back, back to it. Like, boy, when I get this distracted, just segueing to announcements, that's a pretty bad sign. But anyhow, so as I said, moot season. That's how we got distracted talking about Trisha's paper. So. Uh, text mood, as I say, was sort of our pivot uh, between, you know, we had our fall season where we did uh, San Francisco uh, and we did uh, uh, Kansas City and we did Los Angeles uh, and then we did Charlotte, North Carolina. And then we had text mood, which is sort of the big one in the middle uh, in January there. And now we have our spring uh, and into the summer moot season. And uh, the first of these coming up is Sunshine Moot in Orlando on March 23rd. And then Nadermoot in the Netherlands, in Leiden, on April 13th. Uh, and uh, leading up to Mythmoot, of course, the big one, our big annual convention, uh, from the 27th through the 30th of June. Uh, and you can find information on all of these things. Where's my where it is? Okay. If you just go to the signumuniversity.org website, scroll down just a tiny bit, and there we are, upcoming events on each one of these pages, the Sunshine Moot page, the Nader Moot page, and the Myth Moot page. You can find links. You can find information for calls to papers if you're interested to come and might uh, and, and have some, you know, a, a discussion topic idea or a paper, uh, you know, a, a presentation you might want to give. There's information on how to submit proposals for those things. Uh, and there's also, of course, registration links for all three. So Florida on the 23rd of March, uh, ne- the Netherlands uh, on April 13th, and then Mythmoot uh, in Leesburg, Virginia at the end of June uh, as usual. And then we will be into our next moot season after that, uh, working towards the fall where we're going to be uh, doing some 
doing some different stuff. Uh, we're going to be adding, in addition to doing, again, the ones that we did this past year, we're also going to be adding one in New England, certainly, and one in, uh, uh, where was that? New Zealand, right, yes, in New Zealand. So um, we're going to be, uh, we're going to have, I think, six moots this coming fall. So uh, it's going to be a, a pretty sweet moot season this coming fall. So, But here it begins in the spring uh, with Florida and the Netherlands. So just want so again, you can click on any of those and you can get to the registration pages and the calls for papers. All right. And those are our announcements for today. So let us move back to the dwarves. So we had made some decisions about the dwarves and petty dwarves. Uh, there are a few things that we didn't quite get to that we wanted to, to polish up today. Then we're going to talk about Aeol the Dark Elf and a little bit on his backstory and how we get introduced to him and all that kind of thing. And following that, assuming we get that far, uh, we will talk about the villains. The primary things we wanted to talk about with the villains is uh, the, 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 the capture and release program, uh, the way in which, you know, discord, suspicion and uncertainty is sown among the Eldar by those uh, elves who are captured and who either escape or release or whose escape is arranged. Uh, and end up serving as Sauron's spies, uh, uh, and, and therefore, obviously, ultimately, Morgoth spies among the elves. So we we need to to set that up and explain how we want that to happen. We're going to talk about the corruption of men in Hildorian, uh, though we're not planning to show that on screen, but we need to make sure that we have some idea what's going on there so that we can know the backstory when the men are introduced, uh, uh, which will be, of course, principally for Season 5. Uh, and then we need the Dagor Aglareb. Um, the reason we need to talk about that here, though, by the way, is that this is the time when it's happening, right? It's not happening on screen here, but, you know, when we're doing our, like, meanwhile, in Angband, what's going on? Well, the number one thing that's going on is men are being corrupted, so that means Morgoth is absent uh, for a lot of this time because he's off busily corrupting men, assuming that that's, you know, how we do want to continue to play it. So, you know, again, that it's that's why it's it's a major factor in what's going on among the bad guys in season four. The Dagor Aglareb, which is the failed attack um, on the elves in the north. And of course, we're going to need to talk about Glaurung as we're going to want to introduce him since the uh, uh, the. Well, the Dagor Bragalak is going to be happening in season five, but also we had uh, the we had talked about the attack of the dragon, that incident when young, you know, young spunky Glaurong escapes from uh, uh, Angband and goes off on his own initiative, uh, you know, uh, rampaging, uh, and is repelled uh, by Fingon and the horse archers of Hithlam. Uh, that's you know where we. Um, uh, we're thinking about ending the season, so we need to make sure that we think about the whole creation process and the, you know, the the what's going on in the R and D lab and how we want to make this work and how we want to introduce the character of Glaurung. So all of those things will certainly be enough for us to talk about here today. Yep. So uh, let's go back to the dwarves here. Um, we didn't talk about the dwarves meeting the sons of Fanor. We did a lot of work with the uh, with the dwarves and the petty dwarves. Did we decide what we're going to call the petty dwarves? We talked about how we didn't want to use the word petty, but uh, did, did we did we make a decision on nomenclature I there? I don't recall making a final decision. I don't think I have a sinking feeling. We just kind of didn't. Uh, 
I mean, yes, we could use the Elvish term, but I don't think that's enough. Um, I think we're going to want an English term uh, to use to describe them. I mean, Tolkien did uh, feel that he needed an English term, so I think that we should too. I just don't think that petty dwarves is it. Um, uh, The exiles, uh, Murray, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that that works pretty well. Um, the exiles are the houseless. Um, yes, I would think the houseless should be what the regular dwarves should call them, right? Because what they chiefly remember about them, with, or rather what they are commemorating when they are referring to them, is the fact that they've been kicked out of their houses, right? So they don't, these are the dwarves who have no houses. They themselves would probably not choose to think of themselves primarily in that way that is, you know, in that sort of negative sense, they wouldn't identify themselves based on what they don't have. Um, but exiles, uh, which I know is sort of implicitly those who don't have a homeland, right? But um, by calling themselves the exiles, they might, uh, uh, that might be sort of turned in a way um, uh, where they are focused on like what has been done to them. It can be more of a, uh, you know, they are remembering, you know, what they feel to be uh, increasingly over the years, uh, you know, sort of an unjust treatment of their people. The forsaken. That's interesting. Nick, did we end up using that term anywhere else? The forsaken. Uh, Once again, don't remember. I don't think so. I don't think we did. I don't think we talked about that. Um, Anyway, yeah, so those that that that's the direction that okay, so let's the exiles. Um though of course hang on, the elves aren't just gonna call them the exiles though, because nope. the elves aren't gonna think of them as exiles. I mean, if anything, uh, that that suggests somebody who's been put away, right? The petty dwarves are like towards them, not away from them, right? Uh they they are living among them. Uh and so uh would the are the elves even going to differentiate? Um, are the elves? Uh, well, that's an interesting I mean, question. It would be. It seems like it seems like that would be um, whether whether unintentionally or intentionally. But it seems like that would, might be something they would do that would uh, infuriate the dwarves. <laughs> Not even, right. You know, the dwar- right. dwarves are very particular about those are the 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 exiles over there, and the dwar- and the elves are like. I, I don't get it. What's the difference? There's just <laughs> right. there's a bunch of dwarves right. over here. You look just the same to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, and this, I, don't, I can't remember if we said this three weeks ago, because goodness knows three weeks, but um, the thinking back to the Nargothron thing, right? If the elves don't understand the difference, then what, how they, and I would think especially Finrod, would understand it if they did know that there had been dwarves living there before, they would assume, interpret, that it was a gift, right? That the dwarves as a people whom they're seeing as a whole, because again, if they don't perceive the division, then they're not going to see, oh, one group of dwarves ousted this other group of dwarves in order for us to be able to live here. They wouldn't even process that if they don't see the distinction, right? If they don't see the distinction, they would just be like, oh, the dwarves got together and decided to give us this place. That's great. Right. How wonderful. How generous. Right. So they would be they would think it was terribly thoughtful of the dwarves uh, to give them the place like that. So here here Finrod is all like a glow with 
you know, gratitude and friendliness towards the dwarves for the very thing that, you know, the exiled dwarves are, like, retaining this, like, ages-long enmity and resentment for, right? But he wouldn't know that, um, especially because from the point of view of the dwarves with whom he is interacting, that is the non-exiled dwarves, um, uh, you know, Narn and company, then uh, they would, uh, like, from them it is a gift, right? They are gifting it uh, to Finrod. It's just not as much theirs to give, not exactly as much theirs to give as Finrod thinks, right? Um, So I like that. I like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Ellen, yeah, Finrod pays them. But see, I, 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 I think that this will work best if the dwarves treat it like a gift and then he gives, you know, he bestows upon them gifts. You know, he would, Finrod would totally reciprocate their generosity with generosity, right? Um, and he would, uh, he would, you know, because he does have much to give Finrod. Um, and so he would, um, he would, he would give he would give to them. Yeah, I think this is great. I think that this uh, this makes this makes a lot of sense. And Marie, you're right. That would be Finrod making a rather colonial mistake, right? But that's good. That's okay. I mean, you know, I don't. We we don't want to totally escape from. You know, we don't we don't we don't want to try to completely get around colonial issues here. I mean, they're there, and that's good and important for us to think about, right? Um, and you can say that it is a mistake, right? Finrod is not 100% guiltless, but what he's guilty of is not seizing somebody's land. It's not, you know, kicking little, you know, crying dwarf children out into the cold. It is, uh, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, seizing control of someone's ancestral homeland. What he's guilty of is like not doing his research, making assumptions, right? Um, uh, just kind of being clueless. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, no, Ellen, I, I know that in the text it, uh, it's depicted as more of a transaction, um, uh, more of a purchase than a gift, but I like the way that, I mean, you know, the, the facts are the same, right? He's, he's moving it, they're giving it to him, he's moving in, he's giving them stuff for it. Um, but I think the dynamics work better. Um, I, I really like the irony created by having Finrod feeling like not only has he not done anything wrong, he's, this is great, right? You know, he just feels, uh, you know, this is, this is to him the, the most perfect confirmation of, uh, uh, of, uh, Olmo's message, right? Olmo told him to find a, a, a place, and, and now here, look at this. It's like the Valar are, may, are paving the way for him, right? Where this wonderful opportunity emerges, and where not only can he get this really secure place to live in, and and uh, and you know, sort of uh, take seriously and play out Olmo's warning, um, but he can, uh, but but like in doing so, he makes himself, you know, these wonderful allies, right? And, and establishes this beautiful friendship uh, with these, uh, I was going to say lovely, these unlovely people, but who anyway are, are nice and, and have given him, given him this thing and, and, and that's all good. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah. So now, Ellen, I think that we can have the dwarves thinking they're like, the dwarves can be kind of conniving on their end, right? Um, 
they would. Th- so, and but Ellen, I think there are two things. One thing that we were talking about last time, which is that the mainstream dwarves. What are we going to call them? Do we need a name for them? What do the exiles call them? What do the houseless, the clanless call? Oh, <laughs> the 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 old school dwarves, the main dwarves, the housed and clanfold dwarves. Um. Because there would be, I would think, an interesting mix, both of resentment and reverence, right? I mean, they would still yeah. revere, like, their clans and their, you know, perhaps their old lords and, and you know, the idea of, you know, the, the houses of their people and stuff would still be, I think, honored among them. Um, but, the, of course, highly tempered with um, uh, resentment as well. Um The, yeah, <laughs> Phil suggests the oppressors and Nick the unjust. Um, Chris Stevens suggests, since this is a family show, we can't really say what they call the house dwarves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, see, but no, but they're, they're but they're not usurpers. See, I, 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 I think that to merely to for for the for to for us to have. And I'm sorry, I keep thinking of them as the petty dwarves. It's going to take me a long time to not think of them as the petty dwarves. But uh, to have the exiled dwarves be merely resentful, to view them as like dictators, oppressors, um, uh, as simply enemies, I think is is to to sort of miss an important shade of this whole situation, right? Um what they long for is to return. They would want to be back, to be accepted back into the dwarf halls, uh, into their clans. Like, they long for Belagost. They long for Nogrod. And that's why Nargothrond was going to mean something to them, because uh, it was going to be their attempt to establish an eighth house um, with a home like those, right? And in a sense, an emulation of those. So I think that there would be... Um, I think that there would be some kind of uh, um, I, there's resentment, but there's longing too. you know, like resentment of the individuals, maybe, but uh, longing for the culture, longing for the place, longing for the for belonging. Right. Um, and also remember that it is not said that the dwarves who were exiled originally were innocent. They're not just persecuted. They're not just, you know, this is not like a racial minority banished, right? This is not like the, this is not the trail of tears exactly, right? It's different from that. Um, It's less like the trail of tears and more like Australia, right? They were convicted of crimes most, I mean, and might there have been some individual miscarriages of justice? Sure, there might have been. And many of the others left uh, uh, willingly, right? Their families left willingly with them, as we said, uh, went into exile with them. And there might be, you know, needless to say, there are going to be many individual dwarves who are going to be, um, there are going to be many individual dwarves who are uh, uh, like within the halls who are going to be treating them really badly, right? And whom they will remember with resentment, uh, certainly. Um, They will be probably 
more ill-treated than they deserved and looked down upon in ways that is upsetting to them, right? Um, but they, at the same time, uh, again, the first generation of the exiles, like, they, they are guilty, right? Or at least associated with guilt or, or either guilty or voluntarily left um, with hard feelings towards some individuals, but not, I think, just feeling like they are merely the subjects of persecution. However, or the objects, I should say, of persecution. Um, that ch- feeling, I think, would shift as the years go by and as generations proceed so that you like the grandchildren of the people who were exiled originally probably won't feel the same way and probably will shift, I think, more towards resentment and away from reverence. But, you know, there would be a kind of a grief for the fact that they've been sundered, right? I mean, I would think, um, I would think that that's, um, uh, that that's something that would, that would, you know, be heavy on them. And again, like now, now what I'm describing though, is sort of pre Nargothrond after the Nargothrond incident, when they get together and they try to establish their own home um, and they are then kicked out of that and deprived of that again. See, that's a different grievance then Um, them being kicked out to, to some extent or other, them being exiled in the first place was a fair cop, right? Um, now, when they're being ousted from the new home that they were trying to establish, the, the mountain dwarves don't have a right to do that, really. I mean, they have done wrong by them in that. They did not necessarily do wrong by them in exiling them in the first place, but they have done wrong to them in doing this, and so I would expect that post-Nargothrond, the dynamics between the exiles uh, and, you know, the dwarves of Belagost and Nogrod would be much more strained. Not that we're going to have too many opportunities to show that, but, um, but of course what we're ending towards, right, is the gnawing, festering, hopeless um, uh, resentment and bitterness of, of Meme, right? Uh, who is going to be living this, like, small, sheltered... Ex- it was sh- I don't mean sheltered... Uh, this like small isolated existence, um, you know, in which he has like nothing but his own, you know, resentment and his vain dreams of vengeance. Um, so anyway, yeah. And, and they would hate, they would be angry towards everybody, Ellen, cause you're absolutely right. Um, they would, uh, uh, post Nargothrond, they, they're going to blame the elves. Why, why wouldn't they? Right. As far as they know, as far as they that what as for, they know for a fact that the elves, the coming of the elves are the occasion of their being kicked out of this new home that they were trying to establish for themselves. Uh, and for all they know, why wouldn't they? Right. It was done in collusion with the elves. Um, yeah. And anyway, I was but and getting back to the point that I was making before, I have no problem with the primary dwarves. I think this is the sentence I was trying to finish when I realized we didn't have a word for it. Um, the, the, the dwarves of Belagod and Nogrost, no, Belagod and Nogrost, listen to me, Belagost and Nogrost. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Anyway, those dwarves, um, 
I'm totally okay with having greed be their primary motivation. Um, but I don't think there has to be like a purchase contract in place with Finrod uh, in advance of that. I think that they can just argue and, you know, Norn can be involved in this, right? Norn can be looking at, um, uh, he can be, you know, he can meet Finrod and he can see the vast wealth of Finrod, right? So he, now the increasingly aged and experienced Norn comes to the other dwarves and is like, okay, uh, this, I met this new Noldor this, you know, new Noldo guy, he is loaded. Like, this guy has... To, and let me tell you, let me describe some of the stuff this guy has. It's not just that he's rich, right? He's got stuff, like, we've never seen before. Like, let me tell you about these gems things that he's got, right? They are amazing, and he's got boatloads of them. Okay, well, <laughs> not boatloads. Uh, that's a kind of a touchy subject, actually. Never mind. Uh, Anyway, lots and lots of these gems, uh, and I think we could probably pry some out of him if we, you know, if we, so if we're nice, let's establish, you know. And so, the response of the of the other dwarves, right, to Norn would be like, "Oh, hey, so let's um, let's um, um, uh, let's 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 propose a contract, right? Let's sell him this place and see if we can get him to give us that jewels." And then Norn would be like, "No, no, 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 you guys don't know elf lords like I know elf lords." Right. Trust me. That's not the way to go about it. Let's try this. Right. An act of generosity. Trust me. We're going to get a bunch of his treasure coming our way if we do this. Right. Um, and Norn can do that without um, uh, without, um, you know, like real duplicity. You know, he doesn't have to be, uh, you know, he's just being practical. Right. And he knows he values the stuff that Finrod has. He knows the other dwarves do. Uh, and so he's suggesting uh, – and at the same time, of course, you notice what Norn gets out of it, right? A further alliance with the Noldor. That would be – I would think this would be like Norn's retirement project, right? Norn's retirement project is going to be like he wants – having established uh, uh, amicable relationships between the Sindar and the dwarves, he wants to uh, to include the Noldor in this, right? You know, he's thinking, okay, if I can, if I can establish those um, – those relationships too, then, you know, I can retire. Um, and this is his angle on, uh, on doing that. Exactly. Nick, it would be the crown jewel of his ambassadorial career, so to speak. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, okay. So I think that works, but wait, did we decide we, we didn't, we didn't decide what to call the, what to call the, the dwarves. What do the petty dwarves call the, or the non-petty dwarves, formerly petty dwarves, the mountain dwarves? Uh, yeah, Maria, I keep thinking that too. I mean, I keep saying that too. My fear is it's a little dragon lance. Yeah, exactly. That's my that was my thought too, Ellen. Um, the hill dwarves and the and the and the mountain dwarves is exactly how they took that exact distinction. Uh, even with the same practically the same political background, I don't think it was. But I think in the case. Uh, when they built that into the Dungeons and Dragons world, it was explicitly a racial persecution um, that they were kicked out of the mountains. But anyway, yeah, that that division between the main dwarves and the petty dwarves was like so much in Dungeons and Dragons incorporated right out of Tolkien and given some different names. And hill dwarves and mountain dwarves are the, the names that were used there. Um, home dwellers, Nick, that's interesting. Um the ancestors, David. Yeah, I think somebody suggested that before. 
That's interesting. That's interesting. I like that, actually. Well, the great kindreds of the great houses would definitely work, Ellen. I like that. But the problem is it's a little too complimentary. Ancestors is interesting because, of course, that can easily be said with reverence, obviously, right? And so what I like about ancestors is that that's a term which doesn't have to change, but the inflection can change, right? Pre-Nargothrond, they can call them the ancestors, um, meaning nothing but good, essentially, right? With with respect, at least reverence at best, right? But then post-Nargothrond, they can still call them the ancestors, but you can lace that word with bitterness, right? As they increasingly would. Bitterness and then ultimately, well, not sarcasm exactly, but you could weight that term with a kind of irony, right? The, the ancestors, those, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the old... Uh, stuck in their ways and unjust, right? There, there, there are lots of ways in which that can be kind of inflected. Um, yeah, yeah. It's true, Ellen, that great can be sarcastic too, but it, that's a little, it's a little more forceful. Um, it has to, like there, the, the meaning really has to shift. It's, it, it's not quite as, as subtle a shift as we can do. Because again, we can still have some people using ans- the word ancestors in, in in a in a more reverent way and others saying it with more bitterness in their voice. Okay. The ancestors and the exiles. Um I like it. I think I think that makes sense. Okay. Uh the ancestors and the exiles, they would Okay. Right. Okay, so Maria's trying to Okay, from from the the position of the dwar- the dwarves of Belagost and Nogrod will call themselves just the Naugrim, the dwarves, right? And they will call the others the houseless. Um, the petty dwarves themselves will call themselves the exiles and they will call the other dwarves the ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, that works for me. That works for me. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Let's, uh, uh, Yes. Yeah. No, I, I like ancestors because they adopt that at first. Bec- I mean, they wouldn't call them that on day one, presumably, of their exile. Uh, but it's not day one of their exile anymore. They've been exiled for a while. And so there would be the initial impulse. Again, the initial impulse would be sort of a positive impulse to remember where they came from. But then uh, later on, uh, as there's more and more animosity... Uh, that would become more and more bitter. Nope, I like it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, so, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Yariv, uh, uh, Yariv, I'm not sure how to pronounce that on Twitch. Um, I, um, I think that, so uh, you were concerned about the dwarves giving it as a gift without uh, being asking for anything that that, that you know, departs from, uh, departs from how Tolkien depicted the dwarves. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see that before. I don't know if I if that was before or after I gave my rationale behind that. Again, the point would be that would not be their impulse, right? Their, their, absolutely their impulse is to say, is to offer to sell it uh, to Finrod. And then we would have Norn come and intervene, right? Who knows the elves better? Not because he's suggesting, hey, let's 
not do that at all. Let's not, let's just give it away for free and not ask for anything, but rather he tells them a better way to acquire stuff from Finrod, uh, calculating, uh, figuring at least that they will probably get more from, uh, uh, from Finrod if he is friendly and grateful than they will get from him in purchase. So, okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, even Norn, who's a good guy, is not is still a dwarf, right? And he's still totally thinking about wanting to get some of those shiny things for himself uh, and for his people, right? He wouldn't he wouldn't abandon that. Okay, cool. So that's good. All right. Um, oh goodness, we didn't even address the first point yet. How did we do that? How have we talked about this for all this time without even addressing the first point? That's okay. Well, no, we have. We have. We that sounds have, like us. Yeah, it does sound like <laughs> us. Okay. Anyway. Oh, no, because I was just summarizing what we had talked about last time, and that led us on to these other things. No worries. Okay, here we go. So the Sons of Feanor now. So we have Norn establishing through Finrod um, relations with the Noldor, right? But the primary spot where they interact, of course, as we know, is in the land of Karanthir, which is close to the mountains, and thus, therefore, he kind of meets the dwarves organically himself. So how does that come about. On the one hand, this seems to me both both easy and challenging. The thing that seems easy about it is that uh, well, well, no. The, it, both for the same reason. Easy and challenging, both because Karanthir is one of the most dwarf-like of all of the Noldor, right? That is uh, in his um you know, he is, they would have a lot in common. Like both of them would be easily offended. Both of them would be holding, probably holding grudges if the, if they felt that the other wasn't treating them properly um, or did anything against them or their interests. Both of them, presu- you know, are, are, would have, uh, you know, a shrewd value, uh, a shrewd sense of the current market value of things, right? The dwarves would be interested in profit. I would think that Karanthir would too. Karanthir is still an Noldor and he's still a son of Feanor, right? So he's going to be himself a craftsman and a maker and would be interested in the, at the very least, would be interested in the resources that the dwarves could offer him, right? Um, given the sort of generally negative character of Karanthir that we get as a whole, um, and that we certainly have been developing ourselves, we have him as really the most like unashamedly uh, uh, kind of corrupt of all of Feanor's children. I mean, I say, I say unashamedly because at least Kurofin uh, and Kelegorm have like tact at least, right? Karnthir doesn't even have that. Um, we have depicted him as the, you know, um, you know, he is the one in his graduating class voted most likely to do horrible things without very much provocation. Right. So, how do we have Karanthir of all people being the one to establish, you know, foreign positive foreign relations with a, you know, an unlovely and touchy, sensitive group of people? Right. I mean, he's I mean, it just if you think about this from another angle, right, and you think, OK, if the Noldor all got together and said, we need to send an ambassador to establish relationships with the dwarves, whom should we send? 
wouldn't we all agree that Carinthier would be pretty darn near the bottom of that list? Like, you don't want to send him out to be making friends and establishing alliances. Um, that's the yeah, that's not the, much of an ambassador. No, no, he's really not. Um, uh, exactly, Marie. Not your first choice for diplomat. That's exactly right. And Joyce has also voted most likely to bring a sword to a parley. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that seems to me what we have to get over. I mean, having him up. It's so again, the things that seem to me not a problem are you know. So he's there. He doesn't. It's not going to take long for him to interact with them. We know that the dwarves are are are, are traveling down into into Beleriand now. They they have a road. There are lots of references to dwarf roads. The dwarves are the ones building roads um, because they're the merchants, and so they have wagons and things. that Like, if you have wagons, you need roads. Uh, if you go mostly on foot and on horse, you don't care as much about roads. Uh, you just need paths or something, right? You know, you can go across country. Um, but the dwarves are traveling with burdens uh, uh, in their uh, in their trade, uh, with the Sindar, and so they will be making roads. So Karanthir can show up in his country, like, okay, uh, from here to the mountains is all mine, let me explore. And there's a road, there's like a paved road that goes through his country. He'd notice that, right? He'd take a bit of an interest in that. So so here's my first question then. Why doesn't Karanthir, when he meets the dwarves on the road, just say, get out, this is my country and you're not wanted here anymore, uh, you ugly, stunted, little bearded things, right? Um that's that's uh, that seems to me the the sort of the chief thing to overcome um, that they could is, you know, if the dwarves were different, I could imagine, for instance, Carinthir meets dwarves on the road and says some version of that. Right. And then the dwarves in response say, like, oh, but good master elf, like, surely you would like to talk about this first because. You know, we have things to offer and you might be interested to establish trade with us yourself and that you could be greatly profited thereby. Except I can't imagine the dwarves actually doing that, right? If Carinthir speaks <laughs> in patented Carinthir fashion to the dwarves, they're going to be ticked off and offended, aren't they? Um, so how, 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 do we, how, do we over, how do we overcome that? Um, okay, let's see. So Ellen is suggesting that they trade with Kurofin and Keligorm first. Celebrimbor befriends them. Amras tries to politically sabotage the trade route location, and the dwarves switch to Thargelion and Caranthir. Okay, let's see. This is complicated. Um, though I, I appreciate, Ellen, you putting that in a really short comment. That's really good. Uh, so let me see. So if Caranthir, by establishing his trade relations with the dwarves is not paving new ground, but rather poaching, uh, that seems a little easier to organize, right? Um, also, I will say, Ellen, you're absolutely right. The Noldor that I would think, based on, I guess I'm thinking here chiefly of the characterization that we've been giving them, the Noldor most likely to... Um, the Noldo most likely to establish a profiteering trade relationship with the dwarves to both see the possibilities of that right away and seek to take advantage of that is Kurofin, right? Um, Kurofin is the wily one. And I think that he, he would do the math really quickly. He'd be like, hey, okay, potential resources. This could be really great for our war against Morgoth and, you know, our war against anybody else, like, uh, you know, everybody else, frankly, eventually. 
um, uh, it would be greatly to our benefit if we could corner the market in these dwarf goods, right? Uh, so let me see what I can do here. And then Carinthier kind of moves in on it afterward. That would make things a little bit simpler. And Ellen, exactly. Kurofin is really smooth. So Kurofin would be would easily be able to kind of butter up the dwarves and, and make them see their advantage in it, especially since, of course, we have Kurofin being sort of the heir of Feanor as far as craftsmanship is concerned. So um, we know that the dwarves are very interested in what, that they learn a lot from the Noldor, like they learn a lot of techniques from the Noldor. Um, so Kurofin could easily show them some things that they don't know, some, you know, some, some technologies that they don't have. Um, so, uh, and again, I can see him being quicker to think about doing that in a sort of a wily way. Um, yeah, yeah, no, and Chris, you're right. Tolls are kind of like poaching. Um, so, but see, here's, here's one of the things, here's one of the things we have to ask. It's one of those questions that you usually don't think to ask, but I think it's important for us to ask, given the state of the economy of Middle-earth. Getting rich. What's the point of being rich? So, yes, he gets a lot of money. Like, he gets a lot of wealth from, like, his trade with the dwarves and maybe putting tolls uh, on the dwarves, um, you know, on the dwarves' trade. But why? Like, what's the good of wealth? I mean, it's not a money economy. So for him to accumulate money, it, it's, there is no currency as far as we know, right? Um, and certainly no common courtesy. Courtesy. Now, there's very little of that either. Very little common currency among the, the different elf kingdoms, right? So it's not like he's going to acquire to amass wealth, which will give him buying power in other parts of Beleriand or something. Um I would think that the only wealth that would really mean anything to Anoldo would be materials for their own making, right? Um, and yes, Marie, wars are expensive, but we have to hang on a second, because if we say wars are expensive, we're thinking in currency terms. Yes, it requires a lot of goods to wage war, right? You need to feed soldiers you need to arm and equip soldiers and usually you need a lot of money for that but that's only in a currency economy right so yes you need food um yes you need uh so he would have to be thinking about agriculture right uh i mean the sons of fan or all would everybody would of course but they would have to be thinking about that uh, uh you know and sort of stockpiling things they would be making their own equipment right and would be doing that and it's one of the things that they would be really really focusing on. Um, now, I agree, Ellen. I think that having him hoard beautiful things and precious metals and gems and things is good for lots of reasons, right? Um, uh, yeah. No, Chris, I agree that there's that, you know, both sides profit from it. My question is just, we, we need to make sure that we, um, are thinking through what that means exactly, like in exactly what ways do they profit, right? Um, 
as for instance, again, it's not there's no common currency between the dwarves and the elves. So when the dwarves are trading with the Sindar, right, what they're trading for is stuff that they can't get in their kingdoms, right? They're trading for things like lumber and especially like particular kinds of woods and, you know, uh, particular kinds of, of wood and lumber that they can't get in or near the mountains, right? Um, you know, that would be good for particular things that, you know, so that they could use those in their own, uh, in their own works. They would be trading for food, right? And food stuff. Um, you know, again, kinds of food that they don't get underground and things. And there would be other things that they would value, like the pearls, of course, that, uh, they still are importing. Um, exactly. So, uh, um, so yes, they would, um, there would, they, they're essentially bartering, right? The dwarves are bartering with the Sindar and, they would be essentially bartering with Karanthir and Kurufin as well. Now, the difference is that Karanthir and Kurufin are closer to valuing the same kinds of... There is almost a common currency, right? I mean, the dwarves in the Noldor would all agree, like, okay, so precious metals, gems, we all agree these things are valuable, right? So there would be, in a sense, uh, you know, an, an ability to establish sort of trade between them, Um uh, but it would still be mostly bartering, I would think. Like, you know, we will give you a certain amount of, uh, you know, raw iron uh, from our mountains uh, and other metals in exchange for some of your gems. And or but again, but there are other things, too, like in exchange for you teaching us this technique. Right. For, you know, for 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 you know us learning this thing from you um, would be, I think, a big part of what um, of what they would. of the, So. The ability for them to establish a trade relationship, that is, they would certainly have things to talk about. They would have plenty of things and services that they could trade between the Noldor and the uh, uh, and the dwarves. So that, I wouldn't think, would be a significant problem. Um, and the wealth that he would accumulate. So I do like the idea of, because of his trade with the dwarves, Karanthir has great reserves of treasure, essentially, right? Just stuff that he has made, some of which would be practical uh, and some of which would be like just beautiful, right? And decorative and collectible. Um, And David, I agree with you. A treasure hoard is basically a source of gifts. That's the point of a treasure hoard. And you're absolutely right about that. Um, It's also confers status, too. Um, which is not an insignificant role of a horde, but but anyway, um, yes, it's a source of gifts, and so therefore hoarding it only and not giving anything away, as if you were a dragon or something, um, is a bad look. And Karanthir would have that bad look. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, yes, Ellen, I would think one of the logical results of this would be Karanthir blinging himself out. Yes, I would think that those three, Karanthir, Kelegorm, and Kurufin, would all three of them um, become uh, uh, would become more uh, visibly adorned. Um, more precious metals and gems um, on the on Kurufin, Karanthir, and Kelegorm, uh, than even the other sons of Feanor. Um, 
Uh, Mydros, for instance, is totally uh, focused on the war against Morgoth, right? So everything that he has, he's putting into military supplies, right? Better armor, better weapons. That's what he wants. Um, he's not interested in... He's not... No, I think post... After his traumatic experience, he's not really interested in bling at all. I would think that Mythros would be less interested in bling than any of the other of the Noldor, right? Because his experience with Morgoth has made him pragmatic uh, in this regard. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Marie. And uh, Marie, I agree. It, it does present a really interesting uh, picture, doesn't it? Um, if we have Mythros uh, in very like utilitarian garb, standing around with his gorgeously appareled brothers, right? Yes, Ellen, I could definitely see cloth of gold and cloth of silver uh, on them as well. You know, we see all that, and, and and so they look like emperors, right? And he looks like a warrior. Um, uh, and yet he's the boss, right? And so they're deferring to him. But that, I think, would actually would be a really good way visually to sort of indicate the gap between them, right? The tension between them. Um, the kind of inappropriateness of that, in a sense. Um, yeah, 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 exactly, Ellen. He would realize there are things more important than bling. And, and you're absolutely right. Silmarils are not in the bling category. Uh, 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 anymore. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, therefore, simplest thing, therefore, would be to have them be together, right? When because Caranthir, Kelgorm, and Kurafin are all over, they're, all, they're the ones on the eastern front, right? So if they all go over there, let's, let's kind of keep this simple because I don't think we have too much time to establish a major storyline with this. Um, it'll be more of an incident and then, you know, we'll, you know, give us the opportunity to follow it up with other things. But, um, they, the three of them meet, um, meet the dwarves together. We can have Carinthir have a, you know, a rash reaction and Kurafin be like, hang on a second. There's, there's, uh, there's profit to be made here. You know, this is, uh, this is, there's perhaps more to this than you, than you suspect. Um, so then he is the one who kind of sees the opportunity, brokers the initial deal, uh, and um, uh, and gets uh, and, and establishes things. And Karinthir then, I think, would have tenser relationships with the dwarves because he still looks down on them, right? Um, and I would think that he would put an additional tax on them, essentially. Like, he would demand, uh, like a tribute to be paid as they're passing through his lands above and beyond the trade with himself and his brothers. Right. Um, that he would basically put a, try to put a, uh, you know, to, to levy a tariff on their trade to the Sindar. Right. Um, which would make the dwarves unhappy, but they would have no real choice about that. And so therefore by this, we could have, close trade relationships between Carinthir and the Noldor and yet, or between Carinthir and the dwarves and yet no great love, right? No great friendship. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cause I could see Carinthir increasingly say, saying like, well, why should, 
you know, Thingol down there get all this stuff. You know, it doesn't. That's there's there's no point. We should uh, we should have that. Um. Yeah. Yeah, Marie says no great friendship or no great love sounds very Carinthier. That's, that's exactly that's exactly it. Um, and this would also enable him, Carinthier, would probably get to know Aeol as well, because Aeol would travel through his lands to get to the dwarves. So we could have uh, we could have him be known, Aeol be known to them. But we'll come back to Aeol in a minute. So let's think about Telkar. Okay. What is Telkar's relationship? So remind me, what did we already say about Telkar? Didn't we have a falling out between Telkar and somebody before? Oh yeah, I agree, Ellen. Put Aeol and Carinthia in a room together and you're guaranteed to, you know, guaranteed to be BFFs after that, right? Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Oh, so, all right. We were thinking about Telcor and Aeol in season three, but we cut it right. Yeah. Cause we wanted to save the Aeol stuff for this season. Um, did we, we did have Telcar at all though, right? D- didn't we have her involved? Um, man, I cannot remember. Yeah, I can't either. Especially since I know we, some of that stuff we were thinking of doing like the petty dwarves and Aeol both were things that we had, were thinking about back in season three. And then we ended up shifting them here to season four. Um, okay, so we did have Telkar selling arms to the Sindar. Okay, right, because we we had Telkar involved um, uh, when Norn comes back and is like, hey, they need armor and weapons. This is a golden opportunity for us, right? And, uh, well, not golden so much because they don't have gold to sell them, but whatever. Anyway, it's it's it, this is great. Um, okay, right, so she was arming the Sindar and we made Telkar female. I remember that discussion. Uh, so that's all good. Um Okay, right. She's most enthusiastic about making weapons and armor for the elves. That's great. Um, we were projecting for the scene with Aeol was the one where Telkar and Aeol had a falling out, right? Where Aeol makes his like makes Anglachel and uh, Telkar's really creeped out by it, and is like, "There's an there's like an ill spirit in this sword. Like this is this is really dubious." It's on the one hand excellent, but on the other hand, really morally dubious work that you're doing here, Aeol. And and she, yeah, okay, right. I thought that was the story that we had. All right, so I'm fine with that. I think that we should uh, uh, continue that. We'll come back to that question with Aeol when we do Aeol's story in just a little bit. Um, what her relationship with it should be. Um. There are those three things that we know that she needs to make, which we need to, like, distribute, right? Angrist, the knife, which Baron is going to ultimately use to cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. Narsil, which, of course, we know is going to end up with Aragorn. And the Dragon Helm of Dorloman. The Dragon Helm of Dorloman we can postpone, Right? Or can we? Telkar's going to be dead by the end of this season, isn't she? We've got a... She's already been around too long, so she's... she's. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, we, we can't fold, uh, hold... So, 
when the dragon helm is given to Hurin, right? We're gonna have we're gonna have Hurin gifted with it, or maybe we have it given to um, Hador. Right? Remember, I, I was arguing for collapsing that genealogy a little bit, right? Uh, and having Hurin, the son of Hador, directly. We can, if we want to, we can argue about that more later. But the point is, it's given to somebody in that household, obviously, right? That's the important thing right now. So that situation, when that arises, which will totally be a, um, which will totally be a season five thing after the men arrive, obviously, this will be an heirloom of the dwarves made by Telkar, who is now dead and which is gifted to the men for a good reason, right? Um, so, yes. Okay, which means we need to invent another reason why Telkar makes it in the first... So why does Telkar make the dragon helm? Why does Telkar make the dragon helm? Caranthir commissions it? <laughs> um, well, obviously... See, here's the thing. The dragon helm has to be made after the dragon comes out because no one will have heard of dragons until... I mean, it can't predate dragons. (laughs) Right? I mean, that seems obvious, but we have to make sure that they they work on that. So, yeah, Ellen, I know it gets handed around a lot... um, uh, Alan, no one's throwing anything out. Dear me. Uh, I, I might want to make it pass through fewer hands, um, or else it's going to look like a mathem, basically, which I think would be sad. Um, yeah, I definitely don't want the dragon helm to be a mathem. No. Um, Although it would be pretty funny if it ended up in the mathem helm. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I don't think we want it to be a mathem now, but I'm definitely <laughs> but, thinking but that, later, that should, would be funny. Yeah. There should be a cameo where it shows up in the mathem. Where it just shows up in the background. Yeah, it'd be like one of those yeah. Easter eggs, right? Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah that would be funny. amazing. That's funny. Yes. Okay. So, um, all right. Well, first question is when it's going to be well, you're made. Right. And it does need, there does need to be like a stimulus. Yeah, yeah, there is now. Yeah. And the stimulus is fairly easy to think of, right? So Glaurung attacks, right? Glaurung does his pre, you know, the 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 early one, the one's going to happen at the end of the season, right? So we've got Glaurung's premature attack, and so everyone's like, "Whoa!" On the one hand, we handled that. On the other hand, that was pretty scary, and that guy might grow more. So uh, let's. Uh, Let's think about some, uh, you know, anti-dragon technology here. And Telkar is like, okay, yeah, I can do anti-dragon technology. And so she makes the dragon helm uh, in defiance of, you know, so would Azakal wear the dragon helm? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, do we want it to be her inspiration or a commission? Yeah, would it be, right, something bought and paid for, or would it be a gift? That's what I'm trying to think of here. Um, 
Yeah. Um, if she's making it on her own, she would be making it for Azako, clearly. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Which is, in fact, what happened, right? So uh, that's a bonus. Um, <laughs> so she makes it for Azako. And then Azaka gives it to Mithros. The later provenance of it, it's being handed around. Uh-huh. We don't need to worry about right now. Because that's not a season four question. Uh, yep. And we can't even really begin to answer a question like that until we know more about the dynamics of the storylines and the interactions among the characters in season five. Right. We know that it's going to get it needs to get from the dwarves to the House of Hador. Right. Um, and it makes, of course, most sense for it to pass through elvish hands uh, on the way there. Um, that makes all kinds of sense. Unless, of course, we find ourselves wanting to have a reason to uh, connect the humans and the elves directly. Um, but anyway, I, I would say, uh, therefore, the only real question is when she makes it. But how do we do that? Because Glowering attacks in the final episode, right? I mean, it's the end of this season. Um, uh. We would have to have her at the beginning. Well, yes, yes. Yes, yes, that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. Okay, okay, okay. Because, um, see, we could... See, all right, so Ellen, I'm thinking of one of two things here, right? We have to either make the forging of the Dragon Helm be the very last thing. Like, you know, the closing scene of the last episode. Like, in the, and as you say, Ellen, in the denouement of episode 13. Or, alternatively, the beginning of episode, uh, you know, or in episode one of season five. Um, and here's my concern. My concern is if we put it in the denouement, it, that gives it a position of huge prominence. It makes it seem like, I don't know what, like the culmination of the whole season, right? And now, at the end of season four, the dragon helm is being forged. And I think that sets up an unrealistic expectation of it. It's not like it's not going to be important, but it is also not like it's going to play a pivotal role. Um, I mean, even in Turin's own career, it doesn't play a completely pivotal role, right? I mean, he only has it part of the time. Um, it's important, and 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 obviously, you know, we want to show it. But here's... I like putting it at the beginning of Season 5. And the reason I like putting it at the beginning of Season 5 is that Season 5 is the one that's going to end with the Dagor Bragalock. So we end Season 4 with the premature attack of Glaurung, and we don't have a response to that yet nor even perhaps people fully processing it yet because it just has happened, right? So, like, uh, you know, we end season four with Glaurung being fought back and the elves being like, whoa, that was, that was, that was quite a thing, right? Holy cow. Um, and then in season five, we, have, we, we can start season five with people being like, um, okay, basically Glaurung's appearance is the first sign of that Morgoth is going to be able to break the siege, right? It is the first sign that the, 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 the siege of Angband is ultimately hopeless, right? Because Morgoth is going to be able to do stuff that is going to make it impossible for them to hold it in, as, of course, we see in the Dagor Bragalock, right? Uh, so 
we begin then season five with the um uh with the the um preparations that people are making, right? Debates and preparations. And one of those things is the forging of the dragon helm, right? And that can be even a kind of a symbol, right? Uh, so I, I think that that's important. But for me, that makes it much more important. I'm, think about it this way. If we make the forging of the dragon helm a coda on season three, you see the parallel that we've established? Think back to the endings of our previous seasons, right? We have... The tears on the face of Manway over the opening of war, right? War has begun on in Arda. Season two, right? We have uh, uh, the, 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 the Silmarils in the burned hand of Morgoth, right? And Feanor uh, holding the crown of the Noldor. In season three, we have the awakening of humans in Hildorian, right? All three of those things. And we're talking about huge epoch-defining things that we have put as those final scenes in each of those first three seasons. If we put the forging of the dragon helm there, we're putting like massive expectations. Like people are going to expect the dragon helm to be like the most important thing since the Silmarils, right? At least that seems to me what that what 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 that creates. If instead it is merely one of several things that is being done by as as the elves and the dwarves are all of them trying to figure out how to respond to and prepare for Glaurung and what this means and, and, and rethinking the siege and what we need to get ready for and some people being overconfident and saying, no, it's fine, we're going to keep him in leaguer indefinitely, there's nothing to worry about, we beat the dragon once, we can do it again, it's not that big of a deal, and others saying, no, this is a sign of the fact that we're not going to be able to handle this and this is going to get worse and worse and we need to be better and better prepared, but it's probably not going to be worth it, uh, worth it anyway and we're all going to die. Like So you know, that's going to be the debate and the discussion there in episode one of season five in the wake of Glaurung's attack because that will be the framing mechanism like that and um, the Dagor Bragalock itself at the end of the season right that th- those are sort of the, the, the framing concerns of all of season five if you see what I mean right um, so uh, anyway that's why I don't want to do the dragon that, that's why the, the forging of the dragon helm seems to me so challenging because it needs to happen after. And I can see it being, I mean, there, there's certainly a way in which it would be a cool symbol of the response to Glaurung. But again, even Glaurung himself does not seem to me uh, uh, important enough to be the coda in that way. Like his coming in the last episode is a big deal. It's the introduction of a major character. It's a sign of the things to come. It's a great place to end the season. I really like that. But again, the, uh, I know that if I were watching this and I saw the dragon helm being forged, I'd be like, what is this massively important artifact that's being forged that is obviously going to be the key to the whole thing and then it's just going to be a mathem passed around from one king to another until finally it ends up in the hands of an ungrateful uh, uh, and I mean, yeah, it's I, I don't, I think that's going to be a letdown um, yeah, so Nick, it does mean that we have to stretch Telkar out into season 5, but if she's really old then, and it could be the last thing that she forges, right? Um, we can probably her grand, her grand opus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Ellen, I don't no, propose anything I, for a coda yet because we're not there. When we get there, we'll know better and we'll see more clearly. I think. You know, the the other option is we could just make the dragon helm a lot more important. I was going to say. I mean, you know, can we have it become as significant at least for a while as Narsil, or 
or you know, Narsal. I don't know is that significant now. The dragon yeah, could the actually thing. be kind of like a, a predecessor of Narsal in terms of its significance in well, a culture. Yeah. I mean, will it play a role once it gets handed on to men? You know, I mean, will we see? Well, I mean, is it... Yes, but what role exactly? I. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's important. We don't need to make it's, imp- it's cool. Yeah. It's cool, but it doesn't. There is nothing that it does. You know what I mean? Like, Angrist has a job. Angrist has to cut the silver off of Morgoth's Iron Crown, right? Morgoth, Angrist mm-hmm. has a job. Narsil has a job, right? Narsil is going to cut uh, the ring off of Sauron's hand, right? And then be reforged for Aragorn. So Narsil has a job. The Dragon Helm doesn't have a job. Like, it doesn't well, I mean, if you do think of it in turn. Relative to Turin's story, I mean, it, I don't know. Well, yeah. no, I mean, it doesn't it, really. Have it, it's not really there, no. but again, there's no, there's no thing it accomplishes. I'm not saying it has to have a thing that it accomplishes, no, and yeah. I agree, it's armor and you know, not like a weapon. So you know, it's 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 different. You know, to compare it to Narso is is not really fair, and I, you know, I agree with that. But but anyway, right. my, my point is just, um, I don't see. I don't see exactly what role we can... I mean, it's going to have a role. I, obviously, again, I'm not saying it has no role. Um, uh, I'm just saying I don't see it as, like, central. Um, it's important because it's named, right? And well, what about... I mean, could it become a symbol? Yeah, you know what it's I mean? going like to be a symbol. symbol. It's, it's totally going to become a symbol. symbol. So if yeah. it is handed off, you know, it, I mean, if it is... It, 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 it takes the handing off out of the Matham category and into right. something more significant. Right. 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 Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it is going to be symbolic and that's going to be important. And the symbolism of it is good, right? Like symbol of fighting dragons, symbol like of fighting dragons, which is, <laughs> which is a symbol of resistance to Morgoth, right? Which right. is a symbol right. of like being able to like stand against all of the malice and wrath of the right. enemy and not fall and not submit so, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which it's going to be an awesome symbol, but it's only a symbol. Um, right. And well, but it could I mean that. But I mean, it, it could actually have quite an impact as a symbol. I mean, not the same impact as like, you know, cutting the symbol off of Morgoth's crown or the ring off of Saren's finger. Right. But there could be something sim- really powerfully symbolic to it that we could, you know, we could have, I just but it, I don't know. I, it's funny. The because other thing is, I, I, do we really want to make it another character in the story? I well, don't that's know. that's it. I mean, and I'm. It's funny because I actually feel like I am, uh, uh, for some reason, find myself in the position of arguing against almost everybody. And what I'm wanting to do is actually just keep this story. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to exaggerate the dragon helm. Yeah, I, I don't want. No, I, I, don't, I don't feel like we we need to have to change that yeah. you know it, it's going to have yeah. a role it's going to be very important symbolically and we can do awesome things with it symbolically especially yeah. when yeah. we get to the Turin story but even before it can play some really cool um it'll be like a recurring motif an important symbol right. throughout season five that's part of why i want to only introduce it it'll have to five. have its own musical theme it'll have to have its own musical theme <laughs> why not why not? Yes, sure. Phil, get on that. Phil, get on Phil that. Phil get do, on that. Yeah, yeah, the dragon helm. Uh, of, uh, uh, sure, let's absolutely do it. We're, <laughs> we're going to need a dragon theme, obviously, right? Um, and, uh, you know, for, for the introduction of Glaurung. And so it can be like a variant of the, 
We'll fill right. out Phil's oh, yeah. here, but it Never. should be related to the dragon oh, yeah. thing. We'll be listening, so we can, you know. Um. Anyway, you know, yeah. Corey, I don't, I don't understand why you what I don't understand your reluctance to wantonly change the story to make something <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm not reluctant. Am I, it is already why, awesome. I'm just why saying, are you so slavishly following. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to make it more awesome than it already is. You know, it's it's fine. And again, it's my primary thing is it's a season five thing. Like the way that we've divided things, it's a season five thing. Um, because the story, the dragon, we're just gonna get introduced to the dragon. The whole story of like the resistance again, like the the dragon will be a major motif even though he will not be present for the vast majority of season five. Right. Um, but it begins with fear in the aftermath of Glaurung's attack. And it ends with Glaurung's attack for real. And the Dagor Bragalak and Beleriand is largely laid waste. So um, uh, anyway, that's, that's um, I, I, that, that I think is, is, and therefore the dragon helm as a symbol is great, but this is why I see it as a season five thing. So I would rather not even introduce it. So let's ha- let's let's stretch poor Telkar out. We'll we'll postpone her retirement until the beginning of season five. Um, and actually, that makes a kind of a fun framing thing too. If we have Telkar, you know, retiring and going off to die essentially at the beginning of the season, and then we have um, uh, uh, what's his face? I'm sorry, I'm always so tired on Fridays. Um, that Azakal, the dwarf king, he, him being killed right uh, by Glaurung in the Dagor Bragalach at the end, right? So we have dwarf grief at the beginning and dwarf grief at the end, because um, there would certainly be mourning and a funeral for Telkar, who is you know the greatest of their craftsmen. Um, uh, so having a having a, a kind of uh, uh, you know a, a dwarf funeral like the the dwarf funerary procession off the battlefield should be really cool. Right. And I think it would be even cooler if we set that up with an indoor dwarfish funeral procession happening under like calm and normal circumstances at the beginning of the season. And then we show the same thing being executed outside. I, I, I think that could be really cool actually. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Oakwig, that's exactly part of my problem, too. Oakwig says it's so awesome that Hurin barely barely wore it. Yeah, the problem is if we're really faithful to the text, it's going to pass <laughs> through the hands of four or five people, half of whom don't it. even want it. Don't even wear it, right. Yeah, they yeah. don't even wear it. They're like, nah, I'm good. Keep it home on the shelf or hand it off to somebody else. I don't I don't want. And again, like, that's that's. We don't. That's why I would be in. I would be in. That's why I'm, I am likely to argue later on that we reduce the number of people whose hands it gets passed through uh, because uh, we... Because it looks lame. Yeah, we don't want it to just be, yeah, like the unwanted Matham that gets handed around the county. So anyway, okay. Um, let's, uh, um, let's... So we're so so with everybody's permission, we'll postpone the forging of the dragon helm until the beginning of season five. This leaves us with Angrist and Narsil. Now, Angrist, uh, do we need, um, when does, when does Kurofin get Angrist? He needs to get it. 
right? We can't give it to him right away, right? We need to, him to get it later on, don't we? Or could we just make it, would it be possible? Yeah, he needs to get it before he goes to Nargothrond, definitely. Could we make this as the, like, this is what he demands? Um, he could set that as a price. Like, we could work that into the initial uh, negotiations with the dwarves, right? Between Kurafin, Kelagorm, and Karanthir. Um, Karanthir could look with scorn on the dwarves personally and on their works. He doesn't really care. He, he, he wants raw materials from them. So he'll take payments from them and he'll take tolls from them uh, and he'll trade with them. Um, but he looks down on their craftsmanship. Kurafin can respect their craftsmanship and would particularly like Angrist, right? So he would see Angrist and be like, okay, yeah, what do you want for that sucker? Uh, anyway, we'd have to work that up, but he could, he could demand something because of course he's got stuff to offer too. I mean, Kurufin is the greatest craftsman of the, uh, among the Noldor just now, right? With the possible exception of his son. So, um, uh, yeah. Um, now Ellen, I know that Karanthir could respect their craftsmanship without respecting their faces, but, uh. But why? <laughs> right? Uh, I don't think we need to have them all respecting, respectful of the dwarves. And if one of them is going to be unrespectful, Karanthir is my vote. Anyway. Uh, so. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's see if we can work out a way for Kurafin to get it in trade as part of the initial trade agreement. Uh, between Maybe he can have something himself. He can make something himself that he can trade. Um, I bet you, for instance, I bet you the dwarves would be all kinds of keen on the Feanorian lamps, right? They'd love Feanorian lamps. Wouldn't they love Feanorian lamps? Mm, um, yeah, so one. like that could be something that he sort of trades, you know, we could see him trading stuff for, for, uh, uh, for Angrist. Um, so that transaction by itself, like him trading a Feanorian lamp to the dwarves for Angrist, this dagger, um, could, uh, uh, be like we can show that transaction and make it kind of, you know, by synecdoche on screen, right? Represent like, okay, so we see there is a trade re- relationship between, you know, the Noldor and the dwarves uh, there in the mountains. Let's move on. And we've gotten Angrist into, um, uh, into Kurafin's sweaty hand. So that's, that's good. Um, okay, cool. Um, Ellen, I think it's a good question. Ellen asks if he uh, is uh, should commission Angris to be made for him, or does it exist beforehand? I think it exists beforehand um, because I think that all of the Noldor would probably make the mistake of thinking that they're greatly superior to the dwarves and that the dwarves don't really have because they can see that they can do a bunch of things that the dwarves can't, right? So they would probably be slower to perceive of them. Kurufin would be fastest, but they would probably be slower to see that the dwarves can do some things that they can't, right? Um, so my thought is that it's something like, basically, when he's in conversation, be it with Telkar herself or with some of the other dwarves, um, 
and they're basically sort of like trying to show off, right? Like trying to show him the kinds of things that they can do. They would show him Angrist, right? They'd show him Angrist. He'd be like, oh, it's a really nice knife. Like I, I learned how to make knives when I was 10. What's wrong with you? Like this is, and then they show him how like it can cut through metal. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to lie. That's kind of cool. Right. Uh, so uh, how about I give you this lamp and you give me that knife. Right. Um, so uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, Yes, Nick. Exactly. I think that we have the uh, the the, uh, the crystal lamps of Khazad Doom are ultimately reverse engineered dwarf versions of the Feanorian lamps. Yeah, yeah, something like that is exactly the kind of thing I'm thinking. Um, anyhow, uh, that works for me as as uh, uh, and because I I don't think he would necessarily think to uh, to commission it exactly. Besides which, if we have him commissioning it, then we have to imagine. Kurafin like wanting it right and being like hey can you guys do this because it would be sweet if you could do this I kind of feel like if Kurafin wanted a knife that could do something awesome like that he would instead his impulse would not be like maybe I can ask the dwarves to do it for me but he would be all like I should figure out how to do that right and make it myself so I think if if they have it already to me that makes it kind of easier um but um yeah anyway okay um, yeah, David is wondering if uh, uh, industrial espionage is eventually going to become a source of elf dwarf tension. You got to think it's going to be an issue, right? Uh, uh, at least with the Sons of Fanor over there. Um, but I don't know that we need to make that a plot line necessarily. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, uh, uh, Marie was saying that if, uh, of course, if they have a knife that can cut through steel, then no one's going to have to get their hands cut off again. <laughs> right. So we'll, we'll be prepared the, the next time we find some, we find one of our kinsmen stapled to a cliffside. Right. We'll know how to handle that. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, um, Anyway, yeah, no, sure, absolutely. That would be somebody could even mention that, right? Um, uh, that as a possible application to it, but um, yeah, sure, okay, cool, that's good. Narso, <sighs> who gets Narso? Have we decided Narso's role? I think we keep have we've kept delaying Narso's role, right? Um, it has to somehow. Survive. Now this guy really is a character. He re- that yeah. re- that really is a character in the story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So the strong suggestion from the discussion board is Ignor, and I like yeah. Ignor. I think that's a good yeah. suggestion. We need somebody famous, but not too famous, because a lot of the famous mm-hmm. people have more famous weapons, which won't be Narsil, right, and won't be handed down. Uh, Ignor is an excellent suggestion because not only is he going, is he a, like a prominent good person? He's also got a short shelf life, right? And so <laughs> having his sword handed off to somebody else um, is good, right? And, of course, we've got the Ignor and Andreth connection. I was just going to say, could mm-hmm. this have a sword get to men? Get that to she men, exactly. Sword. So we yeah. could have Narsil passing into the hands of humans early in the game, 
right? Right. Um, through Andreth and her descendants. Who is it she has a conversation with, Finrod? Yes, with Finrod, yeah. yeah. Maybe we could have him bringing the sword to her. Yeah. Oh, that's good, Ellen. That's really good. Um, uh, oh, wait, Ellen is telling me Marie's idea. Yeah, great. No, uh, <laughs> thank you, Ellen. An excellent idea, Marie. Um, uh, Emil, dear. Oh, good idea. Yeah. That is Baron's mom, right, when she leads the exodus from Dorthonian and takes all the, you know, it, it leads all of the refugees out, leaving, you know, Baron and Barahir and the outlaws up there in Dorthonian. Um, she could uh, take Narsil with her, right? Why wouldn't she weave the awesome pimped out sword to her husband who's still fighting is the real question. But, I mean, you know, we could have a reason for that. But of course, uniting Narsil with the Ring of Felagund within the House of Barahir from of old is kind of cool, I have to say, right? That, that's pretty awesome there. And I assume that eventually it's going to have to get to Elros, Right. So it becomes a yes heirloom of the, as David says, an heirloom of the kings of Numenor. It's going to become an heirloom. Or no, yeah. or just Numenor, just any Numenor, just some Numenorian, not necessarily Elrond. Well, no, because it's going to become an heirloom of the like the house, you know, of like Elendil's descendants, right? So like that offshoot oh, of the right, royal, right, right, of the right, royal right, house. Right. So the king sword. So like the yeah, sword yeah, yeah. that Arpharazon carries with right. him into Valinor. Right is Thingol's sword, right? right? So, yeah, exactly. It becomes an heirloom of the Lords of Andunier. Right, but, right, but it right, still right. needs to get to Numenor, right? I mean, absolutely. Right. And, and in the royal house of Numenor. So, like, right. you know, Elros himself has, like, multiple awesome heirloom swords, which, of course, makes right. perfect sense because by the time we have Elros shipping off to Numenor, almost all of the awesome people who had awesome weapons are dead now. So there's like a <laughs> massive surplus of awesome legendary weapons kicking around Beleriand at the end of the first age. So that Elros would have two of them that nothing could be more likely. Right. Um, and also that makes it not at all implausible that, you know, some of those things will end up in the, uh, Matham house in the sky. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it could be Elros's. I mean, he could actually, it could be something he gives to that, you know, the initial house of Adunier, you know, founder or something. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. because I'm thinking this is a character. This is a, this sword is a character. Yeah. So, you know, he, it needs to be pretty prominent, even if we have to maybe make a connection to Elros that isn't actually in the book. Um, but it certainly does need to go to Elendil's ancestor. Right. Right. Point. Somehow. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, exactly. And of course, as Nick is reminding us, you know, uh, two of these awesome legendary weapons have to end up in the troll's cave. Right. Uh, Nick also says you can't throw a rock without hitting a named weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, there, there, are, there are a bunch of them to go around at the end of the first stage is all I'm saying. So, um Yes. Okay. Well, so we don't have to worry about the split in the king's line. No, right. Yeah. We just no. know it, it has to get to Numenor. And again, that's not hard. Um, in order for it to get to Numenor, all that it has to do is end up with the refugees at the uh, at the Bay of Balar. And it could get there in any number of ways, right? I mean, as like the refugees from literally everywhere are down there. So that, the, I have an idea for a split, for a spinoff yeah? for, the, for our show, The Adventures of Young Narsil. <laughs> <laughs> young <Narsil. laughs> I mean, you know, I'm talking about being a character, so why not, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Narsil's going to have a long career as an Easter egg, basically. You know, yeah, I mean, truly. It's true. That is true. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be an Easter egg for like a, there is again. a long time. Yeah. I mean, people can mention it. People can name it, right? Yeah. You know, so I think have to make sure that happens. Yeah. You know, we'll that, we'll that make it's... sure that, that Ignor mentions yeah. that, that Narsil is the name of his sword. We can get, we can, you know, we'll, we'll, of course, we'll draw attention to its name when it's given to him. Um, when it gets handed oh, off, oh, I've heard about that sort of rumor. Yeah, exactly. So Tolkien fans will be super excited, you know, when that comes up. Yeah, uh, and that's Narsil made by Telcar, stamped on it. That's right. Right. And it, then, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. And, every, and everyone else, and then Tolkien, Tolkien fans' friends will roll their eyes at them. Right. Exactly. That's right. In the that's in right. the in the old and established tradition. So absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also see a merchandising opportunity here between <laughs> dragon helms and, oh, yeah. and oh absolutely yeah no <laughs> question no question um yeah yeah i i the dragon helm is an admittedly complicated but awesome halloween costume idea needless to say um, oh, but boy. anyway, yeah, no. I'm totally fine with the execs with the execs getting Ignor. Yes, with I am. Fu- <laughs> we are fine with Ignor yeah. getting Narsil. No yeah, question. No question. I agree. Uh, yep. Narsil or, or Ignor is a fantastic choice for lots of reasons, and to ha- and 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 then we can have it again pass to to pass off to men um, through Andreth. Uh, you know, Andreth can take his sword, um, uh, or he could give it to. And I mean, we we have to decide how we're going to do the Andreth. In the Ignor's death scene and stuff, and is that? But anyway, one way or another, um, uh, uh, that doesn't have to matter right now. That's season five question, so we'll kick that one down the road. But the point is, it's got to get to Ignor. How does it get to Ignor? It's special, right? It's a special sword. It's made by Telcar. Telcar doesn't ma- just like mass produce stuff anymore. She's the great craftsman of you know of Belagost. Um, this is one of this is going to be a famous work of hers. Why Ignor? How does it end up with Ignor? Um, uh... <laughs> yes, Nick. This is the first slide. Still, <laughs> it's fine. Roll with it. We're having a day. Aren't We're we? having a day. <laughs> how does it get to Ignor? Whom does she give it to? Whom does she make it for? Whom does she give it to? I think it's designed for elves in the first place. Maybe. Okay. Got it. Norn can commissions it as a gift for Maglor when he, Norn, is retiring. And then Maglor gives it to Ignor. Mablung. I said Maglor. Mablung. Sorry. Mablung. Sindar dude. Right? Um, that's my thought. So I repeat that? Okay. Norn, the ambassador dwarf, is yep. going to retire. Right? He wants uh-huh. a gift for his friend Mablung. So he commissions an awesome sword because he knows Mablung is into that kind of thing. So it's a sword designed for an elf from the beginning. Okay. And he gives it to Mablon. And then we would just need a reason for him to give it to Ignor later on. But as Ignor is close friends with the Sindar, that would be relatively easy. Yeah. Kind of awkward giving away the, 
the get is regifting. He's it. regifting. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, but that's what you do, right? I mean, regifting gets a bad name in the in the modern world, but in old times, that's what you did all the time, right? Like you know, Beowulf gets gifts from Hrothgar, and then he gives them to other people, like to whom he's grateful Start, and starting to sound like starting to sound like a mathem. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to avoid at the end of the day. Uh, but I guess um, it kind of is. It really does get passed around. It just also gets used a lot. <laughs> All right, sorry. Hang on. Uh, Maria is telling me they actually wrote a story for this, and it's on the next slide. Okay, all right, hang on. I'll hold this off till the next slide. <laughs> Let me just touch on the last thing on this slide, and then we'll totally move on to the next slide. We'll absolutely cover two slides, and here it goes. Um, do the Noldor hunter have some sort of conflict with the petty dwarves upon meeting them? We know that the petty dwarves are, in fact, hunted by the elves when they first are seen by mistake. Um, and this is a this is a mistake like tree, the Treebeard mistake, right? You know, I'd almost trodden on you taking you for little orcs, right? He says to Marion Pippin. Had he actually killed Marion Pippin there, that would have been tragic in lots of ways. But, of course, he would not have been wicked for doing so. Um, it would have been an honest, though tragical, mistake. Um, uh, that's, um, uh, okay, we're, we're told about this, by the way, when the petty dwarves are introduced, which is, of course, when Meme is introduced in the Turin story. Um, I can read you the sentence. Before the dwarves of Nograd and Belgost came west over the mountains, the elves of Beleriand, so we're talking about the Sindar here, knew not what these others were, and they hunted them and slew them, but afterwards they let them alone. Um, so the question is, do we want to have any of that kind of, uh, of, uh, of introduction to, you know, do we want to have that? Cause that's certainly possible that we could have, um, we didn't do that with the Sindar for various reasons, mostly because we didn't want to bother with the petty dwarves at the time. Um, so we didn't have their meeting with the dwarves go that way. Um, and instead we had another meeting with the dwarves, which was really cool. So the question is, would we want to have a similar thing? Nothing seems likelier to me than that, like, Kelegorm comes to his new country, finds a couple dwarves, and is like, orcs, and kills them, right? And just, and says, hey, what, is the country overrun with these little orcs? Let me hunt them down. Like, that seems really, really, really easy and really plausible. Do we want to do that? Um I don't think it's necessary. I think it depends on the amount of tension that we want to have. And if we want to have uh, chiefly, I guess to me, the number one question is, do we want to have a significant differentiation in the relationship between the Noldor and the dwarves and the Sindar and the dwarves or not? Um, we, I've already talked about the trade relationships between the sons of Fanor and the dwarves, and that could just be enough by itself right there. And that's all. And we're fine. Um, if we wanted there to be some other reasons for tension or grievance, we could easily have some, um, uh, you know, unintentional killings here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Um. Well, no, Ellen, they, they wouldn't trade with them while thinking they are orcs, right? They would realize their mistake. And of course, see, one of the possible advantages of this is that the wrong-footedness of the Noldor in their initial interactions, the Noldor would have something to apologize for. Surprise, surprise, like what else is new. 
Um, the Noldor would have something to apologize for here. Oops, did I accidentally slay your kin? I'm sorry. I, 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 that happens sometimes, but I'm getting over it. <laughs> and um, anyway, so like that could color the initial um, relations with them. You know, again, if the if the um, if the if the Noldor, sorry, that was just a strange sound here, and I realize it's contractors upstairs cutting something. Hopefully, something they're supposed to be cutting. Um, <laughs> the, just, it sounds like a it sounds like a horn. Like I'm like, is is that a horn I hear in the hills ringing? No, no, it's just a contractor. Fear, fire, foes, awake! <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I was worried about. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, Whew. Um, if the Noldor are approaching their first formal negotiations with the dwarves with an apology. It actually gives the dwarves an advantage, right, in their first, which might be kind of helpful. Um, so that's kind of what I would say, but it might just be kind of too uh, complicated, I think, to really sort of go there. Um yeah, and I agree, Ellen, the Feanorians are not super inclined to polite, gracious apologies. Very true. Very true. But again, this would be, uh, I, I could see that this would be more, um, uh, um, would be part of the Kurifin coming in and approaching the situation with Wile when his brothers are wanting to approach it with blunt force trauma. Um, so, um I could see that working, but um, it's fine. <laughs> As Nick says, I'm loath to pass up an opportunity to make elves look bad, but we do have a bunch of other narratives to juggle. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, no, Ellen, you're right. We would have to have uh, the Feanorns would have to realize that the dwarves aren't orcs at all. And I agree. This is where I, my, my fear is that trying to do this would just be too cumbersome. Uh, it would introduce more, scenes that we would have to do in order to make it all work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So great. Great. Um, so we won't include that anyway. Now here I am moving on, moving on to the next slide for you, Marie. Okay. Um, let me try to follow this here. So here's the story. Fingon visits Himring, sure, as he's going to do, right? Inviting Angrod and Ignor to come with him, right? Angrod declines, right? Because he's still, he was the anti, he was the one really ticked off at the Feanorians even back before the crossing of the Helcaraxa, so that's fine. Caranthir and a dwarf caravan arrive at Himring during the visit. Hmm, okay. Ignor meets the dwarves, specifically Telkar, and is very enthusiastic about talking shop, sure. Caranthir, being his usual unfriendly self, demands that the dwarves reward his half-cousin for his wise counsel. Ooh. Oh. Okay, but I don't want Narsal to be ungrudgingly given. Um. That makes... I don't want there to be a stain on Narsal's history. See what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> So I was just seeing Ellen's suggestion. If uh, if we could just split this one season into two before the men arrive. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Anyway. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I wouldn't want. It was, you said you don't, you don't want it ungrudgingly given? I don't want it grudgingly given. 
Grudgingly. Okay. Did he say ungrudgingly? I, I thought he said ungrudgingly. I might have. Okay. But uh, I, don't, okay. I don't want well, that to be a statement. Want it. I don't we want it ungrudgingly given. I want it ungrudgingly given. Yes. Yes, there you I go. do. Okay. Ungrudging is my positive desire. Um, I don't want to go back to, I mean, because finding like the, the, the original, the origin story millennia before of the sword that Aragorn is going to be wielding, uh, you know, in the Lord of the Rings to find that ultimately it's like it, it, it began at an act of extortion is like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I know. Can you imagine? Well, and uh, I, even before Aragorn, you know, uh, uh, Lendl uses it to cut, the ring off sounds i mean you know it's yeah. like it's oh exactly yeah I, i'm imagining the i'm imagining the the um the 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 like the like the detour at mm-hmm. the council of elrond when when uh aragorn pulls narsil out <laughs> yeah. and they just get totally sidetracked debating <laughs> lineage and owner, proper ownership of it. <laughs> right now the dwarves like, are like, oh, yeah, okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Aragorn's like, I, you know what, I, Aragorn's like, you know, there isn't, I'm not even that much elvish to begin with. Like, I don't really, you know, and, and Elrond's like, or Gan- Gandalf, Gandalf would be one like, guys, can we, Stay on track. Bygones. Come on, guys. This is <laughs> even most of the elves involved with this are dead by now. Come on. Like, that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the and then Gimli spends the rest of the quest, sort of like occasionally bringing it up and and kind of hinting at Aragorn <laughs> that he expects to be given this sword when this right, is all over. Right, exactly. Right. When you're finished using that at last. Yeah. Yeah. No, we exactly. We don't, we don't, we don't want a checkered history um, uh, of Narsil. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I like your story. I liked your, you like, your, you like the, the Mablung story. Like, I like the, I, part of this of course is me wanting to have like a positive thing from Norn and also Norn being an obvious bridge between elf and dwarf um, suggests itself. Um, I, um, Hmm. On the one hand, so here's what I like most about this scene. What I like most about this scene is that it begins to help us establish the character of Ignor, which we really don't have at all. Like Ignor is is he's been an extra to this point. I don't know that we've given him a line yet. Have we in three seasons? Has Agnor had a line? I'm not. Angrod has. He got angry lines um, in the debate about the crossing of the Hell Caraxa. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So, Maria, yeah, that's what I thought. The audience doesn't really know Ignor. So, if we're going to have him be... I mean, he's going to be the hero of a love story in season five. So, establishing him as more than just... Yeah, and I agree with you, Dave, about the regifting thing. That that's That's weird. I mean, it's not weird, but it would seem funny in, in ways that we... Uh, we wouldn't want it to be. Um, I, you know, I, I, I joke, but I don't think it's that big. I don't, I don't think it would be hard to 
invent circumstances around the re the regifting of it that would not yeah. seem weird. Right. I, I don't I don't think that's that big of a deal. It could be it could be Ignor does something fantastic, saves Matt Blung's life. Right. Um, maybe he tosses it to Ignor in the middle of a battle. Ignor is weaponless, and he throws it to Ignor so he can defend himself in the middle of a battle. And then he wields it so heroically that Matt Blung says, "You obviously." Right. You know, like that belongs with you. Like right. it's clear to me. Or yeah, it could be any number of things. Yeah, we can do that. So my problem here's my okay. So I I said my biggest problem with this scenario. My second biggest problem is that like even if we take out the unfriendliness, right, and the extortion, even if Karanthir is not involved in this whole thing, right? We just have the dwarf caravan arriving, and Ignore is like. um Hey, what's up? Uh, like, oh, hey, you make awesome swords, I hear. I, like, I'm in the market for a new sword. Like, how do we do that? Like, why? It just seems kind of forced and random. Like, I've met a random dwarf, and I'm going to have her forge me a random sword because I need to have a random sword. Um, that's why I was thinking of Norn and Mablung, because there's, there's like, a reason for that. Like, it's there's an excuse for a special thing, right? Other than just, hey, I kind of need a pimped-out sword. Um uh, now, Ellen, you're right. We could just have Ignor simply in the market, right? Uh, you know, he had a sword that he brought from Valinor that gets broken at the Dagor Aglareb, so he's weaponless, or worse, walking around carrying a broken sword, which is good for nothing, right? Like some kind of loser. So um, uh, then he would need a new sword, right? And so he would want to upgrade from his broken sword uh, to Narsil, which would be awesome. Um, anyway, yeah, so that, that just simply you know having what? him need a weapon would work. You know, I'm, I'm honestly like thinking about Narsol, the Easter egg. I don't know that I'm all that thrilled with Narsol starting off, starting its history, even as a, even as a neutral transaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think I'd kind of like to see. Like a you know some some initial like something cool or interesting right. happen with it right right yeah yeah the gift of friendship so Ellen you're right we could have Fingen or Mithros commission the sword for Ignor as a gift of friendship but then we have to have a reason for them to be particular friends with Ignor right and then we then we need a backstory for that um, so like one way or another all of the the, the this all boils down into one point. What's the what is Who's the time on? frame? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, what's the time frame for Ignor getting this? We well, need to I'm... have it some. He needs to have it this season, okay? Because we have a shelf life on Telkar, right? She's getting old, um, yep. and if we're stretching her out to the beginning of next season to make the dragon helm, that's as far as we can take her. Uh, <laughs> and secondly, um, uh, secondly. Um, He's going to be, you know, we're going to have the love story of him and Andreth in the next season. So, you know, we could just build him from scratch in the next season. Uh, that would be, f- that theoretically could work, right? So he, if the sword goes to somebody else and is then given, so like if it goes to Mablong or somebody and then is given to Ignore, that wouldn't have to happen until the next season necessarily. Like it could be a season five. Like Ignore getting the sword could be a season five thing. Um uh, a person who goes by the name of Fish Herdes uh, on Twitch 
uh, thinks that Narsil replacing somebody's broken sword is kind of adorable, right? That I have to, it is poetic. I have to admit I was completely joking about that, but I think it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. But I don't yeah. want it to be like someone comes into a shop with a broken sword and then sees Narsil in the mall and says, <laughs> how about right. that one? Right. right. How about that one? Exactly. Um, Telcar checks the price tag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but I, what about what about like in the midst of battle, someone's sword breaks and then somebody else tosses it to them? Or... That's possible. The problem is we have a scarcity of battles during this. The Dagor Aglareb is really our only option there, which we could do theoretically. That's possible. What if what if Narsil plays a key role in driving back Glaurung? Um. Well. Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, of course, in the text, that's done by archers. Um, uh, yeah. Um, now, I, I do like, um, I do like Ellen's suggestion by having it be a gift from, like, Anoldo to uh, you know, from like, from one of the house of the Noldor to the other, right? From like one of, from from like if it's if it's Mithros, for instance, right? Who commissions it and gives it to Ignor? Um, that could be used as part of the whole reconciliation theme, right? Uh, among the among the Noldor, we could use so we could double purpose this scene if we have if we go with the Fingen the Fingen's visit to Himring, because, of course, you, you know, he, Fingen and, Fingen and Mithros are buddies. Um, oh, and by the way, people were telling me that part of the idea was to have Arathel along as well, because it's pre-Gondolin, so she's not locked up yet. And, uh, and so ha- having her come and hang out with the Sons of Feanor and show that she's, like, into traveling around and doing adventurous stuff would be cool. Totally agree. We need to do a little Arathel prep as well. Um, but, um, Anyway, yeah. So, um, um, so if Ignor is there, Ignor is kind of um, in that me in that group, right? Fingen, Arathel, Mithros. Ignor is the only child of Finarfin in the room, right? The ones who are like the most aggrieved about the Kinslay. So Ignor going at all could be made to be seen as, uh, you know, could be, could, could be made to show a willingness to reconciliation and then a gift, a commission from Mithros to Telkar on Ignor's behalf would be a gesture. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Right, and Nick suggests that could be a specific reason why Mithros reached out to him through Fingon, um, because Mithros is thinking that of the uh, of the sons of uh, Finarfin, Ignor is one of the ones who would be most likely uh, to be willing to reconcile. Um, Finrod too, but he's busy uh, and further away as well. Um, okay, I mean, I I like the multi-purpose of that. Uh, I, it's better than having it isolated through Mablung, and then we just have to give like a purely interpersonal reason. Um, 
my first impulse was actually in the opposite direction, that since Ignor does hang out in Doriath, that would be an easier link for, you know, an easier way for that to happen. But we don't necessarily want easy. Um, uh, if it's if it's part of that, if we make it part of that political reconciliation story that kind of works. And I agree, Nick, pretty much everything we do this season has to do several things at once. Okay. All right. So let's keep Carnethier out of it. And I, I, I like it in that way. It can be a, the way in which Ignor is warming up to um, Mythros personally, certainly. Uh, not necessarily all the Sons of Thanor, but certainly to, to Mythros. And we do have to show, <clears throat> um, since we do have to show that uh, Ignor is going to be willing to fight alongside the Sons of Feanor, right? Um and we have to show Mythros actively working to establish positive relationships with the rest of the Noldor, even if his brothers aren't really bothered. Um, yes. Yeah. So, Marie, I think that's that's right. Um, that seems to me a good summary. So, Fingen, Arathel, and Aignor visit Himring and Mythros sometime after the Dagor Aglareb and before the, the uh, establishment of Gondor. This could even be, like, part of Arathel's unannounced farewell tour, right? Her last trip out before uh, uh, she and Turgon go to Gondor. Uh, exactly, yeah. So, uh, uh, epic name, that's exactly it. So, Narsil, then the the origin story of Narsil is as a peace bringer, right? Um, and that's uh, that's kind of cool, right? That's, that's, uh, that's, that, I like it. that's nice. That's nice. It is a it is a it is a sign of reconciliation from the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, of course, Arthel's not going to mention that it's her farewell tour. She might not even know, right? She might not know until. I mean, I I'm kind of imagining a scene where after they're in Gondolin, Turgon says. This is what's going to happen, right? We're shutting the doors and nobody's leaving. And Arthel's like, uh, okay. And she's got to make a choice. I don't think we ever held against her will. She's got to make a choice and she chooses to stay, but it's a choice that she's going to come to regret. Um, anyway, okay. Cool. Hey, can let's start talking about AL. We don't have much time, but let's, but we, we can, we can start talking about AL. If we don't at least begin, I'm going to be super depressed. So, AL. Aeol was last seen storming out of the meeting where the Avari decided to stay in Middle-earth. So we last saw Aeol in episode three of season two. Uh, So it's been ages um, since we've seen Aeol, literally ages. Um, Things that need to be true of Aeol. He is A, creepy. He is B, uh, uh, liking the darkness. He is C, friends with the dwarves and works more closely with them than any of the other of the elves. Um, and we know he's going to live in Nan Elmoth. We know he's going to be established there before the Noldor arrive because he still holds grudges about the Noldor coming and claiming all this territory for themselves. And we know that he is going to have to pay Thingol um, with Anglachel um, uh, for the rights to live in Nan Elmoth. He's going to be the first elf to purchase real estate from another elf, uh, as far as we know. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So how does this work? 
I would be fine with showing some of Aeol's history in a flashback. I could imagine, for instance, an episode that we begin, right, with a, a sort of a, you know, meanwhile, back before the found, before the rising of the sun, right, and then we show some of Aeol's history, uh, and then we, you know, we use that as a segue into establishing Aeol. I wouldn't have a particular problem with that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. And I, I think this idea, the star is really interesting. I, I think that that, this is, a, I, I really like this idea. The idea that he, he witnesses a, a falling star. He sees, he sees a meteorite come to earth, um, figures that it's in Beleriand and that's what induces him to cross the mountains and enter Beleriand for the first time. This would still be before the rising of the sun. Um, and he tracks it down to obtain the meteoric iron. Uh, and that's what the, uh, that's, you know, it, it is with that iron, at least with that, with an alloy made with that iron, uh, the meteoric iron that he, uh, uh, that he forges Anglakel and his own sword. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I like that. Um, That's a good way to get him there. Now let's think about him and his relationship with Thingol. That would be the next thing. Totally agree that we want Aeol happily established or as happy as he is going to be in Beleriand prior to the Noldor arriving. Clearly, that's important. Um, Then Elmoth, where he ends up, is also near the spot where Thingol and Melian had their meeting. Right? Uh, where Thingol uh, was sort of in stasis for a long time. Um, is that why Thingol is reluctant to let him live there? Is that why he wants to live there in the first place? If it's important personally to Thingol and to Melian, why, why does he want to live there anyway? Like, what's up with that? Why that chunk of woods? I mean... Beleriand is a big place and largely uninhabited by this time. The you know the uh, uh, y- you know Morgoth is still in Valinor, right? So things are relatively quiet on the Middle Earth front, and <clears throat> the Sindar are focused in Doriath and where they are. And the Green Elves haven't even come in yet, so he's got a lot of area. Why choose the one place which is, you know, like of sacred memory to Thingol and Melian, and be like, no, no, no. Here's where I want to live. <clears throat> I mean, is he just a jerk? Is there something? Is there something that he? Uh, um, yeah, something like residual magic. There's something I was kind of thinking too, Ellen. It seems a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it seems a little bit like uh, I don't know. Kind of hand waving. I mean, we have to do some hand waving about that. Um, he would have to calculate that it's potent in some way. Um, yeah, the long presence of Melian left a residual virtue on the land. So, right, so he is going to be setting up that, uh, as you guys are talking about, that sort of, you know, pseudo-girdle, right? Um, Aeol will have control of around Nan Elmoth this 
sort of spell of bewilderment and confusion, right? Which is like the girdle, but not the same as the girdle, not as powerful as the girdle and more creepy than the girdle. Um, but yeah, so I guess, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, yeah, I can't think of any other reason why he would fixate on that spot. Literally the only thing special about that place is the Thingol and Melian connection. Um, so if it's not for that, re- if there's not some practical reason for that, why on earth would he possibly do that? Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe he comes across it in his, so he goes and he, he goes and he finds the star metal and he is sort of traveling and looking for a place to be and comes across Nan Elmoth and is like, I can, I, I can do something here. Right. Um, and it is an especially dark forest in the text, Ellen, but again, I'm not sure the cause and effect relationship there, right? Um, you know, did Aeol like it because it was especially dark or was it especially dark because Aeol liked it, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, Marie, exactly. So when the sun rises, one of the things that he would do is make it darker, right? Um, part of the way that Aeol would exert his own power in the little miniature pseudo girdle that he's put around um around Nan Elmoth would be to 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 block out the sun, right? To make it more shadowy. Um and yeah, it's relatively near the crater that will become Lake Helivorn. Yeah, sure, sure. Um Okay, good. That all seems to work for me. And that so the reason that Thingol would demand something from him is because he's what offended, essentially. Right? Like you like, hey, that's that's no, that's not okay, man. Like, you can't take our, uh, you know, romantic meeting place and turn it into your creepy, shadowy, you know, little future stalker love nest. Like, that's not okay, uh, you know. Uh, and so, Ale would negotiate for it, would offer to pay him, and Thingol would be like. Now you sound like a dwarf, except Thingol hasn't met the dwarves yet, probably. So never mind. Um, uh, yeah. What if, what if in negotiating, uh, Aeol agrees to to uh, what if what if uh, uh, Thingol sets up like a little monument and then Aeol ails the uh, the the uh, the groundskeeper for it. <laughs> groundskeeper. <laughs> it's like the, the creepy groundskeeper. <laughs> and then he just moves in, right? And he's like, yep. ah. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. You know, he probably should buy it before the sun rises. Because after the sun, like, Aeol should be, there should be a, there should be a level of creep here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we can't have Aeol maximum creepy from day one. Um, we saw him grumpy back at the original council, right? Back at the, the elves council at Quivienen. He was grumpy then. Um, he was grumpy and kind of intolerant. And he stormed out of that meeting um, and wanted nothing to do with the stuff that they were doing. So he distanced himself from them. So there we saw him grumpy, but again, not necessarily creepy, not necessarily 
sketchy, just, you know, sort of the outspoken, angry spokesperson of the of the Avari there. Um, so then when he meets Thingol, so I would think that his anger at the Noldor would affect him. In other words, we can make Aeol another example of non-reconciliation, right? Um, yep. Yeah. Um, he's another example of what happens when you just, like, hold grudges and refuse to be reasonable and do anything of the sort, right? Um, so, therefore... I would think that if when the sun rises and everyone's like, hooray, the sun is risen, that's pretty cool, and the thou are like doing something, and this has got to be a good thing, right? If Ale's response to that is like, curse the yellow face, and I'm going to like make my woods particularly shadowy and dark, I would think that, you know, this would send up red flags for Thingle if like, the, if, the, if that guy then approaches and is like, so what do you think I've done with the place, right? I've made it like. <laughs> You know, you know, he'd be like, no, no, I, I need at least three or four swords before I'm going to give you that. You know, no, no way. Um, so, yeah. So if he's um, if he's uh, if he's reclusive, socially awkward, right, uh, brusque and slightly unpleasant, but not, you know, um, uh, not really not too many red flags. Thingle sells, right? Agrees to let him do that, you know, accepts his offered payment. I think it's got to be Aeol's got to offer the payment. Um, uh, I can't imagine Thingol be like, okay, well, one sword and it's a deal, right? We'll spit shake on it. I can't imagine Thingol, you know, starting that kind of deal. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so Exactly. As David says, Aeol should need ownership before he can exert the greatest control over the land. He wants to own it so that he can make it shadowy. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. So he asks, <clears throat> he goes there and he, he probably wouldn't even know much about its history, right? Somebody has to discover it. Would Thingol himself discover it? Maybe Thingol and Melian go back there for their, like, you know, like once a decade, they go back for a for like a sweetheart vacation to the place where they met, right? And they find this Avari has moved in, um, and that's when they have their awkward conversation because Ale's not going to ask for permission first, right? There's no way Ale like schleps himself like he's wandering around and is like, "Hey, I'd like to live here." Oh wait, but first I'd better go ask permission of Thingle. That's totally not the way Ale's going to be thinking, right? Um, he would just be like. Sweet woods, residual magic of some kind. I think I'll set up here. Thingol would discover it. And then, so Thingol and Melian come there, and they're like, oh, well, this isn't how we left it, right? Um, and then Ael would be like, dude, you guys aren't using it. What's your problem? And then, ooh, Marie says Luthien and Dairon could discover him. Hey, we've got a job for Luthien. Yeah, let's do that. Anyway, whatever. Um... The point is, uh, it's discovered. He then go either Thingol himself goes or he sends emissaries, such as it might be 
Diron and Luthien, perhaps still, but whatever. Um, and he gives grudging payment to be allowed to stay there um, and resents it because he feels like it was extorted from him and he shouldn't have to pay anybody to stay there anyway. So he's resentful from the beginning. So rather, you know, the, the, they would be like, it would be overtures of friendship. It'd be like, hi, welcome to the neighborhood. We live here. And this is like, you know, this is kind of right next to our kingdom. And oh, by the way, this is a place of great sentimental value for our king and queen. And in fact, all of our people, um, but we can work with this. You know, we're willing to, you know, to think about this. And then he offers the pay. Ale would probably, when he offers the sword to Thingle, he would, he begrudges it. We know that's the word Tolkien uses. But I bet, like, he's, th- he's, he's thinking. It's like, in his mind, he's insulting him. He's insulting Thingle by offering the sword. Um, and Thingle doesn't maybe, f- I mean, he, he understands well enough, certainly, um, uh, Melian would get the point, right? Melian would definitely get the point. She would get the point. Uh, but he would accept the sword and because, he, you know, Thingol is willing to make peace with this awkward neighbor, right? And thinks that the simplest thing to do is to sort of accept the payment and the two of them will, you know, kind of move on and, and uh, you know, and, and they'll deal with not having their anniversary spot anymore, right? Um yeah, yeah. Um, no, so the way that we the way that we convey that it is both begrudged and initiated by Aeol is that he f- it shows the way that he thinks. He can tell that they don't want him to live there, right? He feels like he has every right to be there. Nobody was using this place, right? And like we come here once every four hundred and fifty years is not a good enough reason for like me not to live here. So. He's like he feels like he's got squatters rights in this place and they're trying to evict him or at least guilt him into what he's not even really sure exactly. Right. Um, Because he's not going to be cooperating with them. He's not going to really see where they're coming from because they're not using this place and he wants to. Right. Um, So he's going to offer to pay them. They wouldn't have asked for that. But that's how he thinks. It's not how they think. Right. So he, he and he grudges it because he doesn't think he should have to pay anything. Right. He was here. He established his shop here. uh, And, you know, he feels like they're being high handed in coming in and saying like, oh, but this like belongs to us in some vague and sentimental commemorative way. Right. Uh, And he's like, well, yeah, but it belongs to me in a much more present and important way. So whatever. But he realizes they are more than he is. They are stronger than he is. And so he uh, resentfully says, well, what? Fine. Well, I'll pay you then, right? Uh, here, you know, I will, I, I will, I will give you this sword, which is like way better than you know how to use, and um, um, and she, um, they perceive, you know, she perceives that he's being super grumpy. He and Thingol is like, okay, how about we just accept the awkward payment, and then we back slowly away and call it even, right? Um. Uh, and so he's compromising by letting Aeol totally wreck their honeymoon spot, right? Um, uh, and not coming down on Aeol for that. Um, but he sort of takes the payment because that's what it seems like Aeol. You know, he, again, he's trying to he's trying to like understand Aeol in his ways, basically. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so that's. Um, that's kind of how I'm imagining it working, working out. Um, 
Exactly, Owen, and Thingol does not have any idea how much Ale's going to wreck it. Exactly. Uh, and right now he's just turned it into a forge, right? Um, you know, which is like, okay, like no more like sweet, uh, you know, occasional uh, anniversary honeymoons, right, to this spot because, you know, the peace and quiet of the landscape has been has been disturbed. Um, but yeah, he does not. It, had he foreseen exactly where this would have gone, um, then... Uh, um, yeah, yeah. So exactly, Marie. Ale's been there for some time. We're not going to have him arrive during the timeline of this season, which means the only involvement Ale is going to have in the timeline of the season is going to be his interaction with the dwarves. And my suggestion is that maybe that is involved in the Karanthir Kurafin Kelagorm meeting of the dwarves. Maybe Ale is involved in that process relatively early on because he's going to use the dwarf roads to go to Belagost in order to work with them and trade with them, right? And then, of course, but of course, Carinthia is going to stop him and be like, dude, our land, right? And then Aeol going to be like, your land? What the heck are you talking about? And um, anyway, you know, so we'll have grievance there. So when they meet again, right, when he's chasing Arathel and Maeglin and meets, the, meets Caligorm, right, there's going to be you know, bad blood between them. It'll be like a recapitulation of that first meeting. Um, and uh, and also this gives us a reason for Ale to be grumbling about how the Noldor have claimed the land, right? And, and you know, and, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Marie, I think the, tra- the transaction with the sword... Oh. Timing. I've got to go. Um, <laughs> timing. Yeah, speaking in, of timing, in multiple I've senses of the go. word. Exactly, exactly. Because it has to be after he's already working with the dwarves so that it can be an occasion of his breaking off with Telkar. Yeah, I was imagining the transaction as being uh, in, back before the rising of the sun. So prior to this season, um, but we kind of need the foraging to happen in this season. Um, yep. Um, well, let's think more about that for next time. Uh, <laughs> we're, I don't know, we're actually almost done with AL. Yeah, we are almost done with AL. Once we solve this problem, I think we're done with AL. Um, and we've set him up. Of course, we're going to have the primary AOL thing next season with Arathel. Um, but, uh, right? That's gonna, is that, mm-hmm. that's not this season, right? That's next season, the Arathel story? Yeah, um, I think that's next season. I think that's next season, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that we can have her established in Gondolin and not look like she's getting tired of Gondolin in 15 minutes. I remember talking about that. So, okay, right. Um, good. So, uh, all right, so let's try to solve this timeline issue with the forging of Anglachel and the gifting, and we will... So we'll see what we can do with that at the beginning of next time, and then we'll move on to the bad guys after that. Okay, cool. Excellent. Um, uh, thanks for that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, so definitely bad guys next time, and in the context of the bad guys, we'll also be thinking about the fall of man uh, out uh, at Hildorian. Um, and one of the main questions for me as we're thinking about the bad guys, so another thing for everybody to be thinking about a lot is 
which elves are going to be captured, right? How are we going to handle that? Are we going to, are we going to, do we, are we just going to have, are we going to capture and release a bunch of red shirt elves? Are we going to suborn some named elves or spouses of named elves or something um, to be spies of Sauron? How, how are we going to, how are we going to handle that? That's uh, to me a really big question because it's one of those things that gets like three sentences in the Silmarillion, but which, you know, when you read those three sentences, you're like, oh man, that's a big story right there, right? Like if you really, that's a, you know, the whole, like, those are three sentences which contain, you know, massive quantities of heartbreak and betrayal and grief and, and uh, uh, all kinds of things. So uh, we definitely want to get us some of that. So, but we have to think about who it's going to be because we have to put some kind of limit on the number of characters we attempt to introduce in this series, right? The Silmarillion is full enough of characters and here we are, you know, we've added bunches and, you know, we have to, we have good reasons for doing it, but we got to be super careful here uh, and think about uh, what we can do with that. So anyhow, let's, uh, um, uh, let's, keep uh thinking about that too so 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 we'll talk about that stuff we'll finish ao and talk about that stuff next time and who knows maybe we can talk about luthien too uh maybe we'll we'll we'll, we'll get beyond that stuff next time and i'm not going to hold my breath so that's two weeks from today that's going to be january no february that's what month we're in february 15th uh will be the time of our next meeting uh for discussing those things thanks everybody for joining us and i will say as always thanks for listening and godspeed